speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. Why so many churches? Let's bow our heads as we begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege once again of being able to find answers from your word. And as we look for answers this evening, we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit in a very special way to guide us, to help us to understand, and to make things clear in our minds. We pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening, friends, we're going to look at a number of different aspects to the concept of why so many churches. We're going to look at the origin and the foundations of some of the major religions of the world. We're going to look at some of the reasons as to why there are so many churches in the world. Now, this is kind of a part of a two-part series because tomorrow night I'm going to talk more about why there are so many churches in the world. And so as we begin tonight, we're going to look in the Bible. Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And let's look for the origin of Christianity. Christianity, of course, is the following of Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says that we have the account of the first sin, when evil first entered our world. That evening, the Bible says that Jesus came walking through the garden, looking for Adam and Eve, and when he came to them, he talked to them about what had taken place. They had sinned, they had accepted Satan as the uh, Lucifer, as the king of this earth, And then God said a number of things to Adam and Eve. In verse 14, the Bible says, The Lord God said unto the serpent, Well, he speaks to the serpent here, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon your belly shall you go, dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Then in verse 15, it goes on and it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, It shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the very first prophecy in the Bible pointing forward to Jesus Christ, the seed, the descendant of the woman who would come and bruise Satan's head. Now, a head wound is a fatal wound. And when Jesus died on the cross, he sealed the fate of Satan forever. And so we find the origins of Christianity right here. And if you go on into verse 4, you find the origins of the sacrifice of the Lamb. The Lamb, of course, being a symbol of Jesus Christ. Well, what about the other major religions of the world? Well, let's turn over to uh, Genesis a little bit further, Genesis chapter 11. Now we come down to the time just after the flood. We have Nimrod. He is building the city of Babel or Babylon And the Bible says, he's setting up his religion against God. The whole earth was of one language and one speech. It came to pass as they journeyed, they came to Shinar. And they said, let us make brick. And they made brick. And in verse 4, the Bible said, they said, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach to heaven. Let us make a name lest we be scattered abroad on the face of the whole earth. The Bible says the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men built. Now, of course, you can go to Iraq today and you can see the foundations of this tower still there. You ask, well, why is only the foundations there? It fell into disrepair after the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar repaired it, the great tower of Babylon, the greatest ziggurat that the world has ever seen. But after Nebuchadnezzar, you had Persian rulers. It fell into disrepair and it came down to the time of the Greek Empire And Alexander the Great, as he was returning from uh, India, 
came back to Babylon. It was the most beautiful city in the world. He determined to make it a headquarters for his empire. The great ziggurat had fallen into disrepair. He said, okay, let's, let's start from scratch and let's rebuild this from scratch, make it the biggest, most grandest one in the world. And so he pulled it apart, every stone of it, all the way back to its foundations, and then he died. And thus you can go there today and all that is left is the foundations of the greatest ziggurat there ever was. But it was at this particular time that God said, okay, I'm going to do something to bring an end to this empire that Nimrod is trying to establish. If you go down to, uh, let's see, verse 7, the Bible said, go to. Let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And so here you have the origin of the different languages in the world. Not only do you have the origin of the different languages, but naturally, as a result of different groups of people being able to only communicate within a certain area, you also have the origin of the different races of the world because that naturally produces a race when you concentrate a gene pool. And from there, the Bible says they scattered out over the surface of the whole earth. And we spoke a little bit about this in question time. As they scattered out over the surface of the earth, they carried with them the religion of Nimrod in different variations, or it's changed, the variations have changed as they've come down through history. One of the significant things about Nimrod that we have noticed before was the worship of the zodiac or astrology. Nimrod claimed he was the sun. Semiramis, Ishtar claimed the moon. Then the other great uh, heroes that came along claimed other stars and constellations in planets in the sky. Now, of course, the the original Babylonian zodiac originally had 36 signs, the sum of 36 being 666. Now, of course, this zodiac spread its way around the world in different forms. Here you have the Egyptian version of the zodiac. Here you have a Babylonian version of the Zodiac. Um, Here you have one in a church, which is kind of interesting. And this one is in the Vatican as well. You wonder what is the Zodiac doing there. Here you have the American version of the Zodiac, the Mayan Zodiac. And there you have the Roman Zodiac. And we could go on. Here we have Mithra. And Mithra here, Persian god, surrounded by the symbols of the Zodiac. And of course, there's another Babylonian Zodiac here. We find it popping up in many different places. This one I found interesting while I was visiting the Vatican. Here is an image of the Pope. And around the top of his canopy right here, what do you find but the Zodiac? It's interesting when you travel around the city of Rome that you find this over and over again. The Bible speaks about astrology in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 47. And In verse 13, God is speaking to his people and he says, You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from these things that shall come upon you. Behold, they shall be a stubble. We read this the other night. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There shall not be a coal to warm out nor a fire to sit beside. And so the Bible speaks in rather strong language in many places where it addresses the issue of astrology and tells us very clearly that this is something that we should never have anything to do with. This is a form of the worship of Lucifer, the religion of Nimrod. And so you wonder why it pops up in all of these contexts of Christianity today. And of course, we have been looking at how that Christianity long ago, was invaded by paganism, pagan religions. 
And as a result, there are two levels operating within Christianity today revealing that there is a continuation of the mystery religions being held in secret. Now, while we consider the great religions of the past and their origin, you find that there, in reality, are just two foundational principles for religion in our world. The foundational principle for Nimrod's religion was the concept that the solution to everything is found within yourself. You don't need anybody else. You are God. And so you have one stream of religion that says yourself is the solution to life. The other stream of religion, of course, that you find beginning in Genesis chapter 3 is the exact opposite of that where it says, no, you are not the solution. You are a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the Bible says that the human heart is desperately wicked and evil above all things. Who can know it? The nature of man is evil and man does good things because of the influence of God. And the solution to life, therefore, is not in living for self, but in dying to self and living for somebody else. His name is Jesus Christ. And so you couldn't get two more diametrically opposed concepts in relationship to religion. Now, when you go back to the very beginning, this is the foundation. These are the two foundational principles that Satan established in the Garden of Eden. Number one, he said, you shall be as gods. The second thing he says is, you shall not surely die. And that is the foundation. And here's what you'll find today. When you step outside of Christianity, those two foundational principles are universal. You are the solution and you will not surely die. That's what Satan built his foundation on. Now, it's interesting when we consider the great religions of the world today, you might ask me the question, I think it's a very valid question, why choose Christianity? We can look out at the religions of the world and we say, well, there are many different uh, religions that are out there and many of them have their sacred books and they have their claims to um, authenticity and their claims to truth. I think it's a very valid question. Why am I a Christian? Why do I choose Christianity? I mean, the simple reality is that if I found something that that was better than Christianity, obviously I would be that rather than a Christian. Isn't that so? So I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts this evening in relationship to, first of all, why I choose Christianity. And I'm going to speak about it from three different areas. First of all, experience, evidence, and humanity or the nature of man. Does that sound reasonable? I'm going to begin with humanity or the nature of man. And I want to look at it from this perspective. What effect does the religious foundation of a particular religion have on the human mind? Because obviously your philosophical foundation is going to affect how you think. Isn't that so? It's going to affect the kind of person that you are. And I want to bring out some thoughts that I think that are are very well worth us considering. Obviously, we don't have time to compare all religions this evening. However, a number of things that I'm not going to consider. Number one, I'm not going to consider race because race does not exist. We are all the human race, isn't that so? 
There is only one race on this planet. Race does not exist. So race does not come into this. The second thing that I'm not going to look at this evening is specific teachings of religions. You know why? Because a religion may teach one thing, but if its product is something other than what it teaches, then obviously there is something wrong with the foundational philosophy, wouldn't you say? Does that sound reasonable? Yep, so we're not going to look at the specific teachings. We're going to look at the, the result of the foundation, the foundational philosophy. The third thing that we're not going to, um, to look at specifically is culture. Because culture, 90% of culture or more, is the product of the philosophical foundation of religion. Isn't that how it works? Yeah, so let's put those things aside and then just take a moment to compare the religions of the world and the effect that they produce on human nature. All right, so the claim is that human nature... The claim of Christianity is that human nature, without the power of God, has a natural bent towards evil. So given the right circumstances, we would naturally turn to that which is evil. Now, of course, God uh, has a tremendous amount of influence. So what I'm going to do is compare a number of religions here this evening and, uh, and look at how they actually respond. And the way that I'm going to do it is by asking the question, How has human nature responded to various philosophical foundations in relationship to their enemies? And I'm going to take that one step further and I'm going to say their enemies when their enemies are in a helpless condition. Does that sound fair enough? In other words, we all understand that if we have an enemy and we're fighting, everybody's going to defend themselves, right? But what about if your enemy is helpless? How does human nature relate to that? Well, my son is a World War II historian. And so let me draw an example from World War II, shall we? And so we'll look at four major religions that you have forming philosophical foundations in World War II. You have neo-paganism the foundational religion for Nazism. You have atheism. You say that's not a religion. Oh, yes, it is. It is very much a religion. It is based entirely on faith. If you've got questions about that, come and see me later. Um, So you have neo-paganism. You have atheism. um, You have, uh, let's say, Buddhism, Shintoism, basically the same thing. And you have Protestantism. Now, I'm saying Protestantism because I'm going to separate it this evening from Roman Catholicism, which we all know from its history has a very violent history. So my question to you is this. If you were going to be a prisoner of war, so in other words, you are now a helpless enemy, which prisoner of war camp would you rather be in? The atheist one, the neo-pagan one, the Shinto Buddhist one, or the Protestant one? Well... Let's share a little bit of history for a moment. The neo-paganism one resulted in the deaths, and this is not deaths from battle. This is the enemies who they have, they're helpless enemies. In the deaths of between 11 to 17 million helpless people, 6 million of those were Jews. Uh, Atheism. The number is somewhere between 4 and 10 million. 
many of them going to the death camps of Siberia. Buddhist Shinto, we don't have the exact numbers, but we know that in China alone, that philosophical foundation produced at least 10 million deaths. Did you know in China that at the end of the Second World War, there was only 57 Chinese POWs that survived the Second World War? And then, of course, we could come to Southeast Asia. We could consider you know, many other different things there. However, if you then compare that with Protestantism, do you know that the safest place that you could be during the Second World War was in a POW camp operated by a country that had a Protestant foundation. In fact, you were safer in that camp and you had a higher chance of surviving the war than if you were a civilian. The survival rate in the camps was, uh, in the worst ones, was... um, the mortality rate was 0.15% in the worst of them. And the mortality rate amongst the civilian population, you know, of industrial accidents and all the rest, blah, 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 was 0.4%. Now, that's got to say something, wouldn't you say? It's got to say something very, very clearly that we should actually stop and think about the philosophical foundation, how it relates to the human mind so that when the human mind is in a position where they have power over their enemies, what does it actually result in? You start to see some of the reasons as to why I choose Christianity. Well, that's just one reason. Let me give you a few more. The second thing that we were going to look at is evidence. Christianity is a somewhat unique religion in that it requires evidence in which to believe in it. There are other religions that do not require any evidence because they are merely a philosophy. However, Christianity demands evidence and it puts up certain events as tests. In fact, God lays down the gauntlet on numerous occasions and God says, all right, I am the one who knows the end from the beginning and I will tell you what will take place over here from what takes place over there. Well, from where I'm standing over there. He lays down the gauntlet and then he writes a book. And it's a rather big book and a third of it, thereabouts, is made up of prophecy. Now, all of that prophecy is there available for us. By far the majority of us, because we're living right down at the end of time, the vast majority of it has already been fulfilled. And so we can go back through it and we can see, well, has this taken place? Was that fulfilled? Did this happen? We can work our way through it. We have just scratched the surface of the prophecies that are contained in this book right here. That's why I'm so glad that they're starting Soul Point after I go because then you'll be able to study so many more of the prophecies of this book. And so the Bible gives you abundant evidence. And so then I compare that once again with the other great religions of the world and I ask, well, where are the Islamic prophecies? Where are the Buddhist prophecies? Where are the Hindu prophecies? And we don't have prophecies in those religions. If you want to find prophecy, prophecy is in the realm and the domain of the Bible. You see, it's a rather bold thing to say that you can tell the future because that sets you up to be tested, doesn't it? Yeah, you've got to be very, very confident if you're going to make a statement like that. So there's another reason. The third reason that I want to look at this evening is the reason of experience. Christianity is based 
around a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's based around him coming into your heart. It's based around you becoming a new person as you learn more and more about Jesus in his word. And this evening I can stand here right now and I can testify personally to what God has done in my life. How God took my life from being a train wreck, turned me around, made me into a completely new and totally different person to the person that I used to be. Filled my life with blessings over and over again. So many things. I could not even begin to list the things that I am thankful for that God has done for me. And I should say this because there are some out there who would say that God is in the business of filling your life with things, with financial blessings. That's the prosperity gospel. That's what the Pharisees were teaching back in the time of Jesus, that wealth was a sign of the blessing of God. You don't find that in the Bible. And I've never received those kinds of blessings. God has provided for my needs abundantly. But he hasn't made me wealthy, but he has given me so many blessings. He has given me happiness. He has given me peace. Aren't those the things that we really need in life? Those are the things that are really, truly important. And so these are the reasons why I choose Christianity. Well, then we ask the next question, that is, what about all the different versions of Christianity? There is a whole bunch of them, isn't there? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24 and let's see what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 24, while we're turning there, I want you to think about this for a moment. If you were the devil and you knew that Jesus was coming back soon and you knew that just before Jesus came back, there would be an explosion of knowledge in the world. The Bible says knowledge will increase, men will run to and fro. What would you try and do? Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And let's begin reading in verse 4. The Bible simply says, Jesus answered and said, Take unto them, take heed that no man do what? We've read this before, haven't we? Then it goes on, verse 5, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Verse 11, Many false prophets shall arise, and shall deceive many. Verse 24, There shall arise false Christs and false prophets that shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. It's interesting when you look at Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 16, Matthew chapter 24, Revelation chapter 18, you can go on and on down through the list. The primary means of deception used by Satan at the end of time is through the use of the supernatural. Now, I'm not against the supernatural, and I believe in miracles, and I have seen miracles take place. But they are not your criteria for defining what is truth and what is real. If you make the supernatural your criteria, you have set yourself up for deception. But we know this. The Bible says that there will be a lot of deception at the end of time. So what should we expect at the end of time? We should expect a whole lot of religions. Has that taken place in our time? Yeah, if you go back 100 years, we had about 50 different denominations here in Australia. Now we have about 3,500. We've got 30-some thousand. If you go worldwide, exactly as the Bible predicted it would. So the question that then comes up is this. Well, if you've got all of these religions going around with all of their different gospels, because there's so many different gospels out there, you have the gospel of penance, you have the gospel of salvation by works, you have the gospel of reincarnation, you have the gospel that says that God takes away your power of choice, you have the gospel that says that he never gave you the power of choice in the first place, 
You have the gospel of the immortality of the soul. You have the gospel. This is an interesting one. Some people say if you don't speak in tongues, then you don't have, you're not saved. Um, and you have the gospel of pluralism, which is, simply says it doesn't matter. Believe all different gospels. They're all the same. Well, the f- simple reality is that they are not all the same and that they cannot all be the same. So how is it? With, and those are just a, some of the small list of the different Gospels that are out there. How is it that you find the everlasting Gospel that Jesus says will go to the world just before he returns? The answer is very simple. You need to go to this book right here. I once came to a group of people and, and, and I was talking to them about, um, about the Bible and they were talking about, to me about different things that were happening in their lives and I talked about the importance of bringing to the test of Scripture those things that you hear and learn. And they said, oh, no, 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 you must never do that. Don't ever test the spirits. It's a denial of the Holy Spirit. And I thought, wow, you just set yourself up for a massive amount of deception right there, friends. You cannot afford to sit back and to listen to everything the preacher says and just assume it has to be true. That's why when you come here, I make sure that every single one of you has a Bible so that you can go back and you can check it out for yourself and you can find out whether it's true or not. That's the whole purpose of it. I don't want you to accept what I say so often, one of the reasons, well, this is one of the major reasons that we have so many religions in the world is people sit back in their pew, they listen to somebody who can give an eloquent presentation and they say, well, it must be right. Except anything that comes past without going back. You will notice this, there are so many churches in our world today where people, when they are going there, they don't even take a Bible with them. Do you know why they don't take a Bible? Because they don't get to use it when they get there. They just sit back and listen to anything that's said from the front. And Well, he said it from the front, so therefore it must be true. No. We need to be students of the Bible, friends, because when you know what the Bible says, you know what the truth is, it's as simple as that. So, let's turn our Bibles to Malachi chapter 4. And let's look at a prophecy over here in Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. That's on page 389. And here God says, he says, Behold, I will send you who? Who is it? Elijah. Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now that's an interesting prophecy, isn't it? Who, who is it the Bible says God will send just before he returns? Elijah the prophet. All right, so let's consider that then for a moment. Has Elijah the prophet already come or is he yet to come? Let's turn over to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, Gabriel repeats this prophecy and he rewords it slightly when he repeats it. He speaks about the coming of John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1 and verse 15, the Bible says, And he, John the Baptist, this is Gabriel speaking, shall be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Many of the children of Israel shall return to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the wise, and then, and then he adds this bit here, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So what was John the Baptist's job? The Bible says that he was to come to make ready a people prepared for the coming of Jesus. Isn't that so? Yeah. So God raises up this movement and he uses the prophecy about the coming of Elijah and applies it to who? John the Baptist. In fact, if you go back to Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus speaks about it over here. In verse 13, this is page 395, Jesus says this, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive it, this is Elijah which was to come. So who does Jesus say fulfills this prophecy? John the Baptist fulfills the prophecy of the coming of Elijah. Why? Because he goes out to prepare a people for the return of God. Isn't that what happens? Yeah. However, did the prophecy of Malachi stop with the first coming of Jesus? No, because the prophecy of Malachi went on and spoke about the great and dreadful day of the Lord and Elijah coming just before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, we know that John the Baptist was not Elijah. He was John the Baptist. But the prophecy of Elijah applies to him because he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's not the only person that came that way. Who was the first person that came in the spirit and power of Elijah? Elisha. Elijah prayed for, asked for double the spirit of Elijah. Okay, so we go, we find out, well, when is the great and dreadful day of the Lord? Revelation chapter 6 has our answer. We go down to the end of Revelation chapter 6. The Bible says, or we can start in verse 14, the heavens departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. The Bible says there's a great earthquake just before the return of Christ. Then it talks about the wicked here on this earth. Uh, They say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And here it comes, for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? And so the Bible speaks about the great day of God's wrath and describes it as being the second coming of Jesus. And so what we know here is that there will be a movement at the end of time in the spirit and power of Elijah, bringing the message of Elijah. So you ask the question, who was Elijah? What was the message that Elijah had? So let's think about Elijah's message for a few minutes. Elijah was a prophet in the nation of Israel. In Elijah's day, Israel had left off from following God and they were following Baal, one of the gods of Babylon. They worshipped Baal. So Elijah came to Ahab, the king at that particular time, and Elijah said, unless, because you have, have turned the whole nation away to serve Baal, and of course Ahab had done this because he was following his wife, her name was Jezebel, and she's described in the Bible as being a harlot or a prostitute. And so Jezebel has turned Ahab, Ahab has turned Israel, they're following Baal, and Elijah says, okay, because you've done this, there's going to be no rain in this land except by my word, and then he disappears and he vanishes. Three and a half years later, Elijah comes back, and on top of Mount Carmel, he gathers together the entire nation. Ahab wanted to kill him, but Ahab couldn't kill him because three and a half years they'd had no rain. 
And Ahab figured that the only way they were going to get rain was through Elijah's word. He gathers them all together. The whole nation has all of the priests of Baal there. He's there on his own as the only representative of God. And he calls to the people. He appeals to them. Choose this day who you are going to serve. Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve Baal? He sets up two altars right there on top of the mountain. And he says, let's have a sacrifice on these altars. They, put a, they killed an animal, put a sacrifice on the altar. He says, the God who answers by fire, he is God. Well, the priests of Baal, they, they did their incantations. They danced around their altar. They cut themselves. They did all kinds of crazy things that, that the worshippers of Baal did, that the pagans did, to try and get Baal to pour fire down and light the fire on their altar and nothing happened. In the evening, the Bible says that Elijah called the people close. He poured, he doused his altar with water again and again and again. He doused it with water until the trench at the bottom was full of water and the whole thing was soaked. And then he quietly prayed to God. And as he quietly prayed to God, the Bible says that fire fell from heaven It burned the sacrifice on the altar. It burned the wood on the altar. It burned the stones of the altar. It licked up the water in the trench and turned all of it to ash. And Elijah said to, and the whole congregation said, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to Ahab, hurry up, get down off the mountain. And there's not a cloud in the sky. He said, get down off the mountain. If you don't get down soon, the rain will stop you. And so Ahab left. And of course, the priests of Baal were all executed for the role that they had played in leading Israel away. And so after that, then we find that Elijah was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire and Elisha took his place, the first person to have the spirit and power of Elijah. So let's consider a number of things in relationship to the message of Elijah and the end of time. First of all, we find that the coming of Elijah took place after 1,260 days of drought. You find that in the book of Kings, 1 Kings. Where else, in, excuse me, where else in the Bible do we find that time period? That's a major time period in Bible prophecy, isn't it? So that should immediately prick up our ears. We have an end time prophecy about Elijah and we have 1,260 days involved. We know immediately this applies to the end of time. So something is going to happen after the 1,260 years here on this earth that is related to the message of Elijah. Then we continue on from there. During this time, God's church was in the wilderness. That's where God was. That's where his people were. That's where Elijah was. He was living by the brook Cherith, hiding away from the persecution of Ahab and Jezebel. We continue on. He exposed Baal and Babylon, the religion of Babylon, for what it is, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Then we continue on from there. He was in conflict with the great harlot. Her name was Jezebel. And guess where Jezebel pops up again in the Bible? in the book of Revelation. So immediately we find Jezebel is popping up at the end of time. Elijah is popping up at the end of time. We know that we have some things here that we need to learn about Elijah because there is a movement coming at the end of time mirroring the message of Elijah. He restored the law of God and he was translated to heaven without seeing death. 
Well, let's then compare this for a moment with what the Bible says about God's people at the end of time, shall we? Revelation chapter 12. Let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 12 and we'll start reading in verse 1. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. And here the Bible speaks about God's people, God's church, and it speaks about it in three different stages. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. What does a woman symbolize in Bible prophecy? A church. So if a woman symbolizes a church, and here we have a pure woman, what kind of a church does she symbolize? A true church. How many stars does she have at her head? Twelve stars, Revelation chapter 1 tells us that the stars are symbols of the angels or leaders. Mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, Revelation 1 verse 20. In the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels in context, the leaders. And so here we find God's church with 12 leaders at its head. Now when was it that God's church had 12 leaders at its head? in the time of Jesus and the apostles, right? As we go back to the founding of the Christian church right here. Well, then we go on a little bit further down. We come back down through Revelation chapter 12 and let's look down in uh, verse 5. We find Jesus Christ coming in verse 5. But then we move to the next stage. In verse 6, the Bible says, The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. We read about this time prophecy before, didn't we? Here we have God's church in the wilderness for 1,260 days. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment, but let's me, let me put this up here at the moment. God's church is in the wilderness. Then we come down to the end of the chapter, the end of the chapter, to verse 17. The Bible says here, the dragon was angry with the woman. So this is after she's come out of the wilderness. The dragon was angry with the woman, went to, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so here we have the third stage of the woman, which is what the Bible describes as the remnant. Now, the word remnant means what? That which remains. So obviously what we have here is God's people at the very end of time. Isn't that so? So we need to understand, well, what does God's people look like at the end of time? How do you identify them? What is their message? We're going to look at that. Let's move to, for a moment to back in history to the time of the church in the wilderness. The Bible says that the church would be in the wilderness for 1260 days. We studied this prophecy back when we studied the Antichrist. Why was God's church in the wilderness during this time? The answer is very simple, because they were being persecuted. They had to go to the wilderness because it was the only place that they could survive. As a result of being in the wilderness and as they began to come out of the wilderness, it was a process of them coming out of the wilderness, God began to reveal light to the church one section at a time. And we're going to look at that in more detail tomorrow evening when we do second part of this. Look at another reason why there are so many churches in our world today. But the thing that we really want to figure out this evening, when the Bible says those that remain, how do you identify them and who are they? Well, let's take a look for a moment at some of the things that we find in Revelation chapter 12. If we back up in Revelation chapter 12, 
a few verses, we come to the section where the woman comes out of the wilderness. Verse 14, to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time, times and half a time. 1,260 years it comes up again. Where she's nourished for a time, times and half a time from the face of the serpent. It goes on, the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood. Symbol of military invasion to try and destroy the woman. The earth helped the woman. The earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. In the context of Revelation 12 and 13, what does the earth symbolize? Go back to when we studied the second beast came up out of where? Out of the earth. That's the United States, right? Interesting when you go back to this time period right here. They write the United States Constitution. They establish the first nation on earth that has freedom of religion. You can go there. You can be any religion that you want. And as a result, people left Europe in droves because they were being persecuted. They were being put to death in Europe, but they could go to America and they could find freedom. This was a principle that had been established years before this at the very foundation of the United States. And it came into fruition when it became its own nation. And so we found that the earth helped the woman. So let's put a couple of things up here that we can identify so far. The remnant appears after 1,260 days of drought during which the church is in the wilderness. Well, that mirrors the experience of Elijah, doesn't it? The remnant, when the remnant arise, it exposes Baal or Babylon. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. It's in conflict with the great harlot, restores the law of God. And then, of course, right down here at the very end, the last ones are translated to heaven without seeing death. Don't you want to be a part of that group? You want to be a part of that? I want to be a part of that. Praise the Lord. That Wouldn't that be so exciting? Yeah. All right, so let's consider this for a moment. Let's look at um, Revelation 12, 17, the Bible says, the dragon was angry with the woman. He went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God. So we have the commandments of God right there, don't we? The Bible says that plainly. But then we looked at something last night in Revelation chapter 14. Matthew 24, verse 14, the Bible says, when Jesus says, when this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a witness unto all nations, then shall the end come. We live at the end of time. Therefore, we need to be preaching that gospel. Isn't that so? So what gospel is it that is going to the whole world just before Jesus comes back? It's found in Revelation 14. Let's work our way through it. Revelation chapter 14. And it says this. In verse 6, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those that live on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people saying, in other words, here comes the everlasting gospel. Fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven, earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. We looked at this last night. Fear God, turn away from evil, righteousness by faith. Give glory to him. Live a life that gives glory and honor to God in everything that you do. The hour of his judgment has come. It's taking place right now. It began in 1844 and soon Jesus will return. And then the Bible goes on and references a number, as one of a number of places in the book of Revelation, the Sabbath commandment the restoration of the law of God. The Bible says they keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Then it goes on and there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Did Elijah say that? 
Absolutely, Elijah did. Baal was the primary god from ancient Babylon. She made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The third angel follows them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast, otherwise known as the great harlot, and his image receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And then it goes on. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yes, says the spirit that they may rest, sleep in their graves and their works do follow them. So when we, when we work our way through this passage right here, the Bible actually gives us the last message to go to the whole world. Many people ask me the question, why do you choose to be a Seventh-day Adventist? That sounds like a very valid question, doesn't it? Yeah? This is why I choose to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Not because Seventh-day Adventists are any different from any other people. Not because Seventh-day Adventists are any more holy or have a monopoly on salvation. I don't choose to be a Seventh-day Adventist for any of those reasons. The reason that I choose to be a Seventh-day Adventist is because this message here is described as the everlasting gospel It is the gospel that goes to the whole world just before the return of Christ. And so therefore, I choose to be involved in giving this gospel. Doesn't that sound reasonable? That's why I choose to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Let us look at the message of Elijah for a moment. Here we have a summary of Revelation chapter 14. Did Elijah tell God's people to fear God and to turn away from evil? Did he do that? Yes, he said, choose this day who you're going to serve. Did Elijah tell people to give glory to God? Yes, he says, the Lord, he is God. In Elijah's day, did judgment come to the followers of Babylon? Yes, and all the priests of Baal died. Elijah said, let none of them escape. Did Elisha turn them to the worship of God as their creator? Indeed, he did. In fact, he directed their attention to the only one who created our earth and who could bring rain. Did Elijah say that Baal and Babylon was fallen? Well, that was central to his message. Did Elijah direct them away from the Antichrist, who is otherwise known as Jezebel or the great harlot? Most certainly he did. Did he direct them to then keep the law of God? Yes, Elijah did that. He restored the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel. Did he tell them that they needed to live by faith in God? Was it a message of salvation by faith? Elijah stood on top of Mount Carmel. There was not a cloud in the sky. He sees a a small cloud on the horizon the size of a man's hand. He sees that tiny cloud and by faith he turns to Ahab and says, get down off the mountain because if you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. It hadn't rained for three and a half years and there is a speck on the horizon. He was a man who lived by faith and believed in following God by faith. Did he speak about the non-immortality of the soul as we find at the end of the three angels' messages right there? Well, we find his description of what happened to Ahab when he died. The Bible says that Ahab slept with his fathers. And so we find the everlasting gospel of Revelation chapter 14 is a repeat of the message of Elijah summarized right here. And because it is a repeat of the message of Elijah, I want to be involved in it, don't you? 
I'm not saying I'm Elijah. I'm not saying I have the spirit and power of Elijah. Don't get me wrong. I'm not claiming any of those things. I am saying this is a message that God has entrusted to his people at the very end of time, and he has commissioned us to take it out to the world. And isn't it a wonderful message? A message of hope, a message that Jesus is coming back soon, a message that we can give our lives fully, completely, and totally to Jesus Christ. You know, friends, when I consider this right here and I find that people are accepting this every day and giving their lives to Jesus, it just makes me excited because that's what it is really all about. You see, it's not about making a decision for a church. It's making a decision for a message. I want want you to think about this for a moment. As you come to the presentations here, and I have to say this is, been one of the most appreciative audiences I've ever had. So I do appreciate some of the things that you've shared with me, how you've been blessed by what you've received. Let me share something with you. You go home excited. I go home excited. We all go home excited about the message that we learn here from God's Word, don't we? You don't go home excited because of what I have said. No, you don't. Because I could have stood up here and said it, or Don could have stood here and said it, Marcus could have stood here and said it, any of the other guys could have stood here and said it, and you would have heard exactly the same. It's not about me, is it? It's got nothing to do with me. It is all about the message that creates the excitement. Why? Because it is a message that comes from God's Word. It's an important thing. Always remember this. It's a trap that we fall into as human beings. We start to follow the messenger. Without this message right here, I would have nothing. What would I say when I stood up the front if I didn't have this message? I would have nothing. And God offers it to you this evening. And he says, here is a message a message to take out to the world and to share with people around us. This message, friends, is centred. Centred right here in Revelation chapter 14. In fact, let's centre it in Revelation chapter 17 where it says, The dragon was wroth with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Two things right there. They keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus. You see, it is all focused on Jesus. It is all focused on worship to Jesus. Then you go down to the very centre of it here where it summarises in verse chapter 14, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the what? And the faith of Jesus. Let me tell you something, friends. Those two things go together inseparably. Do you know why? Because it is impossible to keep the commandments of God unless you have faith in Jesus. Isn't that so? You can't separate those two things right there. It's impossible to worship God without and obey God without having faith in Jesus Christ. And so, friends, this is all about serving Jesus. It's all about taking a message that he has given to us and taking it to the whole world. And so I ask you this evening, who here 
wants to be involved in taking this message, Revelation chapter 14, which summarizes what we've been talking about here, which summarizes the fact that Jesus is coming back soon. Who here wants to be involved in sharing that with other people? Do you want to be involved in that? Well, friends, praise God and may God bless you all in a special way. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your incredible love for us. We thank you for the privilege of being able to serve you. We pray that you'll bless us in a very special way now as we leave this meeting, keep us close to you. Bring us back again on Sabbath as we continue the study of your word. And so we pray for your blessing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 2 4973 
You heard What Will You Do For Jesus, sung by Heritage Singers, and also The Light of the World by Call to Praise.